0: of the top administration officials came from organizations like Freedom Partners or Americans for Prosperity that were run and directed as part of the co-political network. And there's, by all accounts, a very friendly relationship between the two. They certainly feel as though their interests are being well-served by this administration.
1: And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies, and strategies that can beat authoritarian populist like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40 I am recording this introduction on the day in which brave people in Venezuela are fighting for democracy, are fighting for their freedom. I don't know what will have happened by the time you listen to this. I hope they will have succeeded. Perhaps my second preference is for the regime to have won. What I fear the most is a repeat of the situation in Syria in which you have years and years of bloody civil war. But what's particularly exercising me today is the extent of support that the bloody dictatorship of Nicolas Maduro has received from parts of the left in the United States, across Europe, and especially the United Kingdom. Now, there are many reasons for this. There has always been a market on the left to support any dictator as long as he claimed to be left-wing and claimed to oppose the United States, from the Iranian regime to the Iraqi regime to Cuba, uh, in some cases even to North Korea. But I think there's something else going on right now, something connected to the cynical way in which Donald Trump and members of his administration have celebrated the opposition leader Juan Guaido. We are now in a moment in which a lot of people on the left don't allow the principles to guide them in the view on free speech, in the view on anti-Semitism, in the view on whether or not Nicolas Maduro is a dictator. Instead they become the photo negative of anything that the right says. If the right not always consistently not always honestly fights for free speech, it must mean that free speech is bad. If the right criticizes certain utterances as anti-Semitic, it must mean that they couldn't possibly have been anti-Semitic. And if the right says that Nicolas Maduro is a terrible dictator, then we should look past the suffering, look past all of the well-documented power grabs, look past the tanks that are killing people in the streets of Caracas today, and somehow try to see this government as legitimate. Friends, this is not how we can stand up for any principles, least of all the principles of liberal democracy. The key weapon in the fight against polarization is to be guided by a substantial set of standards rather than allowing the views of our opponents, of our adversaries, to determine in a roundabout way what we are to think. My guest today is Alexander Hertel Fernandez. He's an assistant professor of politics at Columbia University, and he's also the author of a really interesting book called State Capture, how conservative activists, big businesses and wealthy donors reshape the American states and the nation. We had a really broad ranging conversation trying to figure out under what circumstances interest group politics can be a positive force and under what circumstances it is a concerning negative force. It's a conversation that touches on things like conservative interest group politics and the huge role of big donors in American politics, but goes way beyond that. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Alex. Well, thanks so much for having me on. One thing that I've been wanting to talk and think about on the podcast for a long time is the role of money in politics and the way in which special interests shape and misshape our politics. And while well, populism is in part a response to a lot of those developments, so there's nobody better to have on on this topic than you. How do you see, on a sort of 10,000-foot view, the role of special interests in American politics at the moment?
0: Well, I should start by saying that special interests have always played an important role in American politics. Interest groups have been with us for well over a century. But I think what's changed in recent years is the sort of sway that they have over policymakers, not only at the national level, but at the state level as well. And I think the role that they play has become outsized relative to the influence of ordinary voters. And in other shows that you've had, you've discussed, I think, recent research in political science that really spells out just all the ways that special interest groups have really pulled policy away from the preferences of average
1: and middle-income and lower-income citizens. So what would a positive role of special interest be? Because I think we so much assume today we talk about big donors, we talk about the control of elites over policymaking, but sort of in the standard literature and political science, what would be some of the positive roles that lobbying groups and special interest groups might play?
0: Special interests can play any number of positive roles in democracy. I think one of them is informing citizens of what government is doing and then helping to engage them productively in the policymaking process. You can think about social movements that pull people in on causes like the civil rights movement or gender equality or economic justice through the labor movement. And those social movements all have the characteristic that they're pulling in people, educating them about political issues, and then helping them connect their interests to what's actually happening in state cap in Washington, D.C. So they're amplifying people's voices. Another important role that interest groups play is becoming stewards of policy information and providing that information to policymakers. Policymakers are often busy. They don't have time to invest in specific knowledge related to a whole range of policy areas. And so special interest groups can develop that expertise and provide the knowledge that they have that's relevant to the sort of decisions that policymakers make.
1: You know, I suppose part of what democracy is about is this process of interest aggregation. That one tradition, at least, of understanding the point of democracy is that it's an incredibly sophisticated machinery for making sure that when something bugs you, when something is important to you, you have a way of ensuring that it's actually taken into consideration by those who govern. And organizing people around specific sets of those interests giving them a voice and informing legislators about the existence of them is all part of sort of that process. Now, obviously, there's also worries, and I take it you're quite persuaded by them, as probably am I, that this process of intersegregation can be misshapen, that it can go too far, that it can be lopsided. So in what ways do you worry about this process? You're right to pick up on my concern, and this has been a big
0: theme in some of the research that I've been doing, including in a recent book entitled State Capture, where I spell out the ways in which interest groups, particularly those that are active in state policy across multiple states, have become very skewed away from the preferences held by middle-income, lower-income citizens, and towards those of conservative donors and private sector businesses. So how does this process break down? Well, I think I've already alluded to one of those ways, which is when interest groups pool in a direction that's not favored by majorities of Americans. Now, that might not necessarily be a problem in itself, but it becomes problematic when there aren't other interest groups fighting on the other side of an issue. So let me give you a concrete example. Right now, at the state level, the forces that are pushing for cutting back labor rights, both for private sector employees and public sector employees, are far better organized, far better resourced than the proponents of greater labor rights. And as a result, we've seen a movement away from protections for union and non-union workers alike. And those have had big consequences for the economic security and well-being of many Americans.
1: So what's the evidence that conservative groups have greater leeway here? Is it just in terms of the total amount of dollars they spend? I know in your book, State Capture, you talk about the existence of organizations that coordinate policy in different states in a way that the left doesn't have an equivalent for. How should we go out and look at the world and measure whether or not conservatives are more influential in that way than liberals, for example? It's a tricky
0: question. I think there's a tendency amongst many on the left to look at conservative successes today, fundraising totals on the right, and say, wow, conservatives are really successful. They must have always been successful, judging by the sort of policies that get passed in these states that are under full Republican control and the amount of money that big donors like those associated with the Koch political network are able to raise. But that wasn't always the case. And in my research, I try and push back against what Steve Tellis has called the myth of diabolical conservative competence. And I look at the ways in which conservatives actually were on the outs starting in the 1970s. They faced a big wall of democratically controlled states. They faced a rising public sector labor movement. Public sector unions of teachers, of state and local agency workers were just getting the rights to organize and collectively bargain. And that posed a big threat to folks on the right who were worried about the sort of policies that unions were promoting across multiple states at the same time. And so a number of donors, political entrepreneurs and politicians, joined together to form cross-state networks that pushed right-leaning legislation across the states. These include the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC, that some of your listeners might be familiar with. But more recently, the State Policy Network. It's a network of conservative state-level think tanks. And most recently, the Americans for Prosperity, a federated advocacy organization that's a key part of the Koch brothers' political network that, in many ways, is like a parallel political party with offices at the local, state, and national level grassroots volunteers and and a campaign war chest. So what are the ways in which I document their success? Well, I look at the substance of legislation that these organizations have been promoting, and I show that over time, they've become much more successful at getting their ideas inserted into state law. I also look at the sort of affiliations of lawmakers, and I document that an increasing proportion of Republicans are tied in some way to these groups.
1: Yeah, I love this idea of what does Steve Tallis call it? The myth of diabolical conservative competence. Yeah. And I was speaking to David French, who I also had on a podcast a good number of episodes ago about this at one point and he told me about his experience of leading FIRE, the free speech organization at one point and until then he had really just been ensconced in much more conservative movement type organizations and he told me that they had the reverse myth, the myth of diabolical competence on the left mm-hmm. that it's the liberals who have all of the money they have, all of the civil society organizations, they really know what they're doing. And it's us poor conservatives who don't understand what we're doing. And then he became a head of this organization which has a lot of liberal and conservative people, and he suddenly realized that all of the liberals had the inverse idea, that everyone on the conservative side is so well organized and so on. So I think it's important to push against that. I mean, on that theme, you know, how do you measure legislative success in those things, because I certainly see that there's a set of things on which conservatives have been quite successful at the state level when it comes to things like union bargaining, some voter ID laws, and so on. At the same time, it's not obvious to me that when you look at the last 20 years of American politics, conservatives have been uh, triumphant across the board and certainly you've had very important liberal successes when you think of something like same-sex marriage, which started in the states and then obviously became federal law through the Supreme Court, but also all kinds of other things. Anti-discrimination legislation, which has been introduced in many state legislatures in many cities. Couldn't you have an argument on the other side saying, look at how liberals have managed to pass all of this liberal legislation at all of these state and municipal levels?
0: I think you're exactly right to point to some important successes on the left, particularly those associated with civil liberties and gay rights in particular. Uh, The Fight for 15 movement has also been a big success at raising minimum wages, especially at the city level. But I think those victories also point to some important uh, glaring holes that progressives haven't been able to fill and that conservatives have been much more successful in accomplishing. So take the Fight for 15 movement, for instance, pushing for a $15 minimum wage. They've been very successful at getting cities to pass increases to their minimum wages. But because of the way in which American politics is designed, if you don't have control at the state level, state governments can simply pass preemption laws that say that city governments are not allowed to pass increases to labor market standards like the minimum wage. And as a result, the Fight for 15 movement has really only been successful at raising city level wages in blue states. And in these red states, they cannot do that. And that, I think, very clearly underscores the importance of having this organizational clout at the state level.
1: You know, one way of thinking about that is also in terms of institutions that different people own. I think that there are a lot more movement conservative institutions. There's a, in certain ways, a richer think tank landscape on the right than the left. There are more, you know, summer schools and educational initiatives that are expressly ideological, which conservatives tend to fund, even things like the Federalist Society, when you think of a law. But isn't that in part because the establishment is left-leaning? Isn't that in part because universities are certainly liberal-leaning? Because uh, many media organizations still are liberal-leaning, even though you obviously have a counter-establishment with things like Fox News and so on. And so, in a way, it is unsurprising that conservatives have to invest more into those very explicitly ideological organizations because that is what's required for those ideas and interests to have a forum. And so, you know, it's a little bit difficult to compare apples with apples, because it's true that there are no explicitly equivalent liberal counterparts. But to really get a sense of the influence of each side of a policy debate, you would also have to try and quantify what kind of influence universities and courts and other things have over the national life.
0: I think that's exactly right. And that's why in my research, I've tried to look systematically bill by bill at what resources do these different organizations have to bring to bear on legislation. And so in my research, I leveraged what I call policy plagiarism, looking at the influence of model bills on state houses. And I look at cases where lawmakers have copy and pasted their ideas from either conservative or liberal groups. And in the book, I track the growing success of one organization in particular, the American Legislative Exchange Council, But this has also been replicated by a team of investigative journalists uh, working for USA Today just a few weeks ago. They looked more systematically at even a broader set of interest groups on the left and the right that were pushing legislation across the states. And they found that model bill adoptions and introductions from conservative and business friendly groups far outnumbered those from left leaning groups. So that's one specific domain of politics, state policy and politics that I think is incredibly important. But I think you're right to point to these other areas areas where the balance of power might be closer, or at least at some degree of parity.
1: So, we talked a moment ago about the myth of competence on the other side, but there's also a specific myth that this is all about money, and my understanding is that you don't think that the success that conservative groups have had at the state level is just about a greater amount of financial resources. It's about how they go about advancing their agenda.
0: That's exactly right, that I think liberals and folks on the left all too frequently point to conservative success and attribute it to the fact that they have deep-pocketed donors that can finance these organizations. But as I try and spell out in the book, it's not – only about how much money is available, but the consistency with which donors are giving that money and then how that money is spent. So let me spell those out in a little bit more detail. Consistency matters because when you're building up organizations that are going to have a presence in most or all of the states, you can't have stop and start funding where you try and build for a few years, donors become less interested in your project, withdraw, and then you're left to start all over again in a few years once donors become interested. That's exactly the story of what's happened on the left, as I document that progressive donors for many years were only interested in building cross-state power when they were out of government at the national level and as soon as democrats gained majorities in congress or control of the white house that they lost interest in funding these state level initiatives. The second thing that i think is important for understanding these differences on the left and the right is the sort of policies that the organizations pursue that the conservative organizations that i write about have been far more single-minded in focusing on policies that will build power over time as opposed to left-wing groups that were far more reluctant to think about policy as a way of reshaping power. And let me just give you a couple examples. It's no coincidence that the conservative organizations that I write about pursued very aggressively tort reform efforts in the 1980s. And the reason why you would get social conservatives, businesses, and even libertarians all coalescing around this seemingly obscure issue of tort reform was that it would weaken the trial lawyer bench in a Mm. lot of these states with trial lawyers being an incredibly important donor to Democrats and progressive causes. And so if you could make it harder for them to get business, you would weaken the Democratic Party and weaken progressive causes in these states. You've seen a similar story with how conservative networks have prioritized cutbacks to labor union rights as a day one issue. There's no reason why, for instance, private sector companies would necessarily care about cutting back public sector union rights. They have a clear reason to to cut back private sector union rights, but why would a company care about teachers' unions, for instance? Mm. Well, these conservative organizations successfully made the case that if you cut back the power of teachers' unions, you make it easier to elect Republicans and promote conservative causes in the years and decades to follow.
1: So how do we think about what makes interest groups bad in specific contexts? We started out by laying out some of the ways in which they can play a productive role in certain contexts. I think we all have a strong intuition and a hunch that this can go terribly wrong, that there could be situations and setups which would be terribly unjust and that probably the United States is one of them right now. But just taking a step back conceptually, what kind of attributes would you have to see to say this is bad? Is it that different ideological movements are represented to a different extent. But that obviously raises the question of, well, what would be the right extent of different ideological movements and how do you define what is an ideological movement and what isn't and so on and so forth? Is it that the interests of different economic classes are not represented in equivalent ways? Is it that the ideology that the two of us probably like a little bit better is underrepresented versus one that the two of us happen to dislike is overrepresented? How do you think about these normative questions in a way that seems fair-minded. It's a
0: tricky question for sure, and I think we have to be careful to separate the effects of the policies that we observe promoted by these different organizations, either on the left and the right, from the sort of consequences for democracy and democratic institutions. And the way I see it, I think there are three ways of judging whether or not special interest groups are either hampering or enriching our democracy. One of them is to ask, are they pushing against or with opinion of majorities of Americans? If we're looking Looking at policy after policy, where these special interest groups are opposed to what majorities of Americans want, I think that that is problematic from our perspective of the quality of democratic
1: institutions. Um, so I think it's problematic, for instance, that. But, these but let pro- me let me jump in for one second. So I recently spoke to, you know, very influential and very thoughtful donor in the gay rights space. He's now sort of expanded from that, but that's very much how he got into politics, and he's one of the real movers on that now. You know, when he started out in politics, he was absolutely working against the views of a majority of Americans. When his coalition started, for example, to push for a same-sex marriage, a very clear majority of Americans rejected that. Now, in part because of the very thoughtful advocacy work and the broad coalitions they built and the very smart messaging that he helped to invent a lot of americans have changed their mind and now same-sex marriage is supported by a vast majority of people in this country and that's a wonderful thing so isn't that an example in which an interest group working against the opinion of a majority and working to persuade the majority actually is good. Perhaps that's the distinction. Is it about whether you're trying to persuade the majority or whether you're trying to ram legislation through legislatures without really engaging the broader public in the debate? Is that where the distinction lies? So
0: you anticipated my second qualification of how special interest groups intersect with democracy, and that is whether or not when confronted with these controversial positions that are disagreed with by majorities of Americans, do they try and bypass public opinion altogether, misrepresent it to policymakers, or do they do the hard work of going door-to-door, neighbor-to-neighbor to try and convince people that their position is mm-hmm. right. And I think that is certainly the case with LGBT rights and the civil rights movement as well. I think that's less true for some of the organizations that I study in my work that are opposed to, say, union rights or increases in the minimum wage, where instead of trying to convince the public of the worthiness of their demands, they will just bypass the public altogether. And in other research, I've looked at what members of Congress's top staff think of of public opinion in their constituencies. And I've found that particularly business-backed but also conservative special interest groups will often misrepresent the public opinion on the issues that they're lobbying on to members of Congress mm-hmm. and their top staff. And that pulls policy in Congress away from the preferences of majorities of people in their own constituencies.
1: But again, isn't that just a general Feature of activist groups that they use push polls or they use selectively presented data in order to try and convince people of there being much greater support for what they believe than is actually the case.
0: Certainly, Um, but the question is whether or not they then try and convince large segments of the public of the worthiness of their claims that they should change their mind on those positions. And I don't think you've seen that on issues like I mentioned, like the minimum wage or around union rights, where large majorities of Americans support increases to the minimum wage or support expanding union rights. And it's much more difficult for interest groups opposed to those positions to convince the public to change their mind.
1: You had a third one, I think, which I I uh, cut you off from. So I want to make sure that I don't keep cutting you off. So the third test to think about whether
0: or not special interest groups are bolstering or weakening democracy is whether or not uh, they're trying to make the sort of sphere of participation in politics larger or they're trying to reduce it. And here I would look to groups that have pushed measures that either make it harder for individuals to vote or to register to vote or to participate in politics or that try and curb the landscape of of civic associations and i think those represent problematic retrenchment of the quality of our democracy.
1: And so here we're talking about things like voter id laws, what else would fall into that bucket? Voter id
0: laws certainly attract a lot of attention, but i also think measures that make it harder to register to vote. Vanessa Williamson, a political scientist at the Brookings Institution has We both know from grad school. <laughs> yes, exactly. Full disclosure has uh, done some great work in Texas recently showing just how difficult it is actually to register people to vote independent of the voter id required. Requirements in that state. So I think that's another obstacle. I'd also point to measures that weaken secondary associations or civic associations as being equally important. So if you make it harder, for instance, for groups that mobilize low income people to participate in politics, I think you are cutting back on the quality of of democratic representation.
1: Yeah, no, that seems convincing to me. I know that this is not exactly a wheelhouse, but if your wheelhouse is industry politics and my wheelhouse is populism, let's try and meet for the purposes of this conversation. How do you think all of that is connected to populism? You know, I certainly think when you look at the appeals of many populist candidates, when you look at the things people will say about why they're unhappy with the workings of a democratic government, there is a rich resonance of some of these themes where people are saying... The government is bored of anyway. Nobody is listening to us. You know, I have to play by the rules, but the rich don't. Even, I think, one of the most effective lines that Donald Trump had in the primaries, where he was asked why Hillary Clinton had been at his wedding, and uh, Clinton's response had been something like, I thought it would be fun, which doesn't sound very convincing. And Donald Trump said, well, you know, as a real estate developer, I had to buy people off, and so this was just part of what you do. Um, and I'm going to change that, which I claim is perhaps a little bit more dubious. But that sort of speaking about some of the corruption in the system very openly, very aggressively is certainly part of what makes populist, not just Donald Trump, so appealing. So how much of a role do you think the hold the special interests have over the government plays in, say, the rise of Donald Trump in the American context?
0: I think it's related in a couple ways, and I think you're exactly right to point out the sentiment amongst some segments of Trump supporters. We should always be clear here, as you have been in the past, in differentiating the supporters of Trump who are Republicans who would have voted for any Republican candidate and those who were particularly activated by the distinctive economic positions that Trump was staking out and the claims about the corrupt nature of Mm. of American politics that he was putting out there. I think amongst the latter group, the the folks who um, feel as though they weren't being heard by the political system, they had good reason to hold those beliefs, that the Republican Party, particularly over the past two to three decades, has adopted economic positions that many Americans and even many Republicans disagree with. The sort of prioritization at all costs of tax cuts for wealthy individuals and for businesses, its not something that many rank and file Republicans are very supportive about. Neither are they very excited about cuts to important social programs like mm-hmm. Social Security or Medicare. And yet, these have been the top priority for many institutional Republicans, reflecting the power of both businesses, but also increasingly ideological donors within the Republican Party, most prominently, for instance, the Koch brothers. So I think that those Republican voters attracted to Trump were, in a way, onto something that the Republican Party had ceased to be responsive on those economic issues
1: to their electorate. So I guess there's at least two pathways by which the rise of interest group politics or the increasing role of money and politics and the skew towards the conservative side may have given rise to Donald Trump. The first is that it eroded trust that citizens in general had in the government, that more and more people felt like, you know what, these people in Washington, D.C., they're not really looking out for me. So we got to get rid of a bunch of bums in D.C. and do better than that. And that's obviously a core populist message. But the second may be that the specific hold that these institutions had over the Republican Party forced Republican primary candidates into a set of positions that actually aren't popular among their own base. So it forced people like Jeb Bush to say, I'm going to reform social security or I will ensure that I lower taxes on business. And that may actually not be positions that most Republican primary voters like. And so it left this big lane for someone like Donald Trump to come in and say, I'm different from all of these other guys. I don't believe in that stuff. And that's how one of the two American political parties got captured by populism. I think that's a
0: fair characterization, but I also think that there's an institutional and organizational story as well that the Republican Party as an institution has been hollowed out by the emergence of these outside groups that are increasingly performing many of the core functions that were once done inside of the party. And I think uh, most prominently, for instance, of Americans for Prosperity, the organization I mentioned earlier that is a core part of the Koch political network that is itself a sort of parallel party performing many of the get out the vote activities that the Republican party might have done in earlier decades. It manages to attract many of the top volunteers, operatives, activists within Mm -hmm. local and state politics who would have otherwise gone and worked for the party And so it is weakening, in a way, the core of the Republican Party and its ability to gatekeep, which I think has emerged amongst political scientists as an important barrier to the sort of extremist populist candidates that we're seeing in Trump and in other countries around the world.
1: So there's a big tension in right-wing populism around the world in what kind of economic policies they should actually pursue. I think that there's roughly two camps. One of them is sort of, I suppose, a set of neoliberal policies. I'm slightly skeptical about the usefulness of that word, but I think in this context, it is relatively straightforward. So just saying, look, I'm going to come in, I'm going to slash taxes, I'm going to make it easier for business to come in. You know, there's this weird empirical, if not conceptual connection between libertarian politics and far-right politics. You see it figures like Ron Paul, but you also see it in some of the European traditionally libertarian-ish parties like the FPÖ in Austria being taken over by the far-right and essentially turning into far-right populist parties. So there is a strand of that. Another example is the AFD in Germany, which was founded as a protest party against the euro, but has now essentially turned into a far-right populist party. Then I think there is a strand which is perhaps a little larger of parties pursuing what some political scientists have called heron folk democracy, by which they mean that they are actually in favor of the welfare state. They want quite strong social protections for locals. They're often against free trade, they're often rhetorically at least against the big corporations, but they want to restrict access to those benefits and to that welfare state, to people who are part of the quote-unquote heron to people who are part of the ethnic majority in their respective countries. Now, my hunch in general is that the drift has been towards heron folk democracy rather than towards neoliberal policies. When you look at which populist parties succeed in the long run, it tends to be those ones. When I was traveling through Central Europe in March, through Poland and Hungary and Austria and Italy, I was struck that in each of those countries, the populist governments had very visible social welfare policies, which helped them expand their base and gain voters, mostly child benefit payments that were very generous for families, for example, that had at least two children. Now, I know that in the American case, you actually think that the Trump administration has, in the end, ended up pursuing policies with which some of those right-wing donor networks can easily get on board. So, describe to me how the policies of the Trump administration actually have, in some ways, been captured by these interest groups, and whether you think that this strange alliance can continue in the long run. I think that's an
0: interesting way of framing the question in the context of the United States and that you're exactly right to point out that the sort of Politically popular policies that the right-wing populist parties have pursued have been related to expansions of the welfare state, particularly for native ethnic populations as opposed to immigrants or those who are defined as being sort of outside of the national community. But you haven't seen that in the context of the United States. In fact, you have seen the Trump administration really double down on the sort of policies that the institutional base of the Republican Party had been supporting well before his presidency. What were the major priorities of the Trump presidency in Congress? They were repealing the Affordable Care Act and passing large tax cuts for wealthy individuals and for large businesses. And within the executive branch, the priorities have been towards deregulation of environmental standards, of labor market standards, and labor market oversight, and increasingly friendly postures towards wealthy taxpayers at the IRS, for Mm. instance. The few areas where you have seen a departure include trade and immigration. But even there, I think that um, it's possible to overstate uh, the sort of movement um, that has actually substantively happened as opposed to the rhetoric, particularly on trade. I think that's less so for immigration.
1: Yeah, I guess I'm torn on this because I absolutely agree with you in the characterization of the actual policies pursued by the Trump administration. But I also do think that in the primaries in 2016, a lot of the appeal of Donald Trump was that it sounded like he was going to act differently on that. And so that's why I guess my curiosity is about how you see that playing out in the long run. Do you think that right-wing populists like Donald Trump can continue to make noises that sound more like a version of welfare state chauvinism, how and folk democracy, and then keep governing as those interest groups would prefer? Or do you think that eventually uh, the rhetorical power Of this, how in folk democracy stands, will pull them away from the interest groups. Let me give you a specific example
0: involving some of the donors that I'm most familiar with. Those donors and organizations affiliated with the Koch political network, and I think some have interpreted Trump's victory in the primary and in the election as a repudiation of the power of large donors and especially the Kochs, who detested him as an individual and whose network declined to formally endorse him. But under the surface, all of the organizations and above all Americans for Prosperity were supporting the election of Republican candidates at the state level, at the local level, in Congress. And we have every reason to think that those Republican voters then went on to vote for Donald Trump. In addition, those organizations supported by wealthy donors on the right helped to secure congressional majorities that then gave Trump the sort of ability to pursue these relatively unpopular policies. And so I think you you have to understand the organizational landscape of the Republican Party in order to understand why it is that Trump is sort of pursuing this paradoxical set of policies that resonated so strongly with the Republican primary electorate. You know, As further evidence, I would point out the fact that many of the top administration officials came from organizations like Freedom Partners or Americans for Prosperity that were run and directed as part of the Koch political network, and Vice President Mike Pence has been a regular fixture at the donor confabs that the Kochs have organized. And there's, by all accounts, a very friendly relationship between the two. They certainly feel as though their interests are being well served by this administration.
1: I suppose my interest is in trying to project this out into the future. And there's all kinds of obvious paradoxes in the Trump administration. And perhaps that is a sign that these paradoxes can continue to exist. And there's always paradoxes in reigning political paradigms. Or perhaps it's a sign that eventually they will clarify themselves or so we're in a moment of realignment where clarity will emerge over time. And so I was wondering, you know, if let's put it this way, if Trump loses election in 2020 and a new Republican populist gains the nomination in 2024, which is by no means certain, would they continue on the same strategy you think? Would they sound as if they want to expand the welfare state and protect quote-unquote, real Americans from the the vicissitudes of the markets while actually undermining the welfare state? Or do you think you might get a populist who is more in the mold of those that have been most successful internationally and therefore distances themselves in the governing practice a little bit more from those donor networks you talk about?
0: It's a great question, and we're in the midst of this transformation of the Republican Party, so it's hard to tell where we'll end up in 10, 12, 24 years. I tend to think that when you're examining the trajectory that these parties are going to take, that you have to look to the organizations that are underpinning them. And while I do see strands of what right-wing economic populism might look like within the Republican Party – you know, you think of Tucker Carlson most recently in his transformation – I don't see the sort of organizations that would endorse these candidates up and down the ballot, that would turn out voters on the basis of these issues, that would support these candidates. So I have a hard time thinking that this is going to be an enduring change in the posture of the Republican Party.
1: So how do we ensure that what you describe as state capture goes away? What kind of reforms can we put in place? What kind of laws and policies Can we pursue to rebalance the influence of interest groups and get back to a form of interest group politics, which perhaps is productive rather than destructive?
0: Well, I think returning to our initial conversation about the productive role that interest groups can play in American democracy, that we shouldn't try and outlaw any of these organizations, that that's, I think, the wrong tack is to focus on eliminating them from the political landscape. Instead, I think that if you disagree with the positions taken by these conservative cross-state networks, you should get out and organize and create countervailing organizations on the left, representing the interests of lower and middle income citizens and representing the interests of the working class. I mean, the labor movement is probably the first and foremost organizational counterweight, I think, to the organizations that I describe in the book that I write about. And I think rebuilding the labor movement has to be a priority for folks who are concerned about the sort of interest group capture that I discuss in the book.
1: Why do you think the labor movement has become so weak and what does rebuilding it involve? It seems to me that a lot of the reason is a set of quite systemic changes in our mode of production, that trade unions were strongest when a lot of the workforce was employed in big factories, which had a whole bunch of collective attributes. You had, and I know this is slightly the cliche of a sort of striking image, but you had hundreds of men walking to the factory doors at the same time for the same shift, working there for, you know, eight or 10 hours, then walking home. You know, there was an obvious way in which organizing them, getting them on the same page, making them feel like part of a political community was a lot easier than when you think about something like Uber drivers, who are each starting the work at different times and finishing at different times, who actually never need to encounter another Uber driver in their working lives. So can we change that through political will alone? Or is the lower weight of trade unions just a result of larger shifts we're not going to be able to reverse?
0: There's no question that shifts in the nature of work, the sort of work that people are doing, and then how they're doing it, uh, whether or not it's in a factory with 10,000 other people or whether it's in a car on their own, has made it harder to organize. But it's made it harder to organize under our current set of rules and policies governing labor unions, which have not been updated in a serious way since the 1930s and 1940s. And that in itself is an incredible obstacle, because you could imagine a set of rules that would make it easier to unionize Uber drivers, that would mean that you could organize McDonald's workers at different franchises all across the country. But those moves aren't possible under the current set of laws that we have today. Current labor law says that if you want a union, you have to organize on a store-by-store, factory-by-factory, worker-by-worker basis, that it's not possible to set wage standards, set working standards for entire regions or sectors as it is in other Western European countries where you have seen much less of a decline in labor density. And I think that's the real tell is that Other Western economies that have seen similar economic trends, similar economic pressures, have not seen the dramatic decline in union membership that we have here in the United States. And we need look no further than our northern neighbor in Canada to see a country that has a very similar economy that has a higher level of union membership. And I think that really highlights the importance of policy and law in explaining the weakness of the labor movement. And as I write about in my book and point out in other research, The decline of the labor movement very much reflects a counter-mobilization on the right, particularly one that is across states to pass policies that make it harder for workers to organize and bargain. Above all, as I've shown in my research, the passage of right-to-work laws that make it harder for unions to collect dues and raise revenue from the workers that they represent.
1: So labor unions, anything else? Labor unions are a certainly
0: important part of this because they have the potential to have a cross-state organizational presence and that they're federated in the sense that they have a local, state, and national presence and that they tie people together who might not otherwise come into contact with one another and promote a greater tolerance and respect for diversity as I think work on the civil rights movement has shown quite productively. Aside from bolstering the labor movement, I think we need changes to the ways that we finance elections. I wouldn't put those first and foremost, but I do think that campaign finance is an important part of the story. Mm
1: -hmm. Alex, thank you so much for coming on
0: the podcast. Thanks so much for having me on.
1: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying this podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter, and finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to Good fight at NewAmerica.org.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit NewAmerica.org.